I'm turning to the book of Joshua in chapter 11 this evening. We're going to try to cover a number of chapters, and our subject this evening is faith's thought process, how to keep our faith strong. Well, we return to our studies in Joshua. We've looked at the conquest at Jericho and at Ai, even though that was the second time that they were successful. And we noted that in both of these cities, these were the only two battles where Israel was the aggressor. And even at Jericho, really, they did not lift the sword in anger. So there was only one battle, Ai, and that the second time where they were the aggressors. And this is important because many allege that the book of Joshua is just full of battles which were unjust, unholy, and those befit a God who is not just and who is unholy. That's not true. It doesn't bear out the facts. We remember as well that in all the battles, this is the judgment of God. There was a suspended judgment for four, five hundred years over the whole land of Canaan because of their great and deep sin. God had to judge, and they were warned many, many times. Thirdly, we remember that peace was offered. It was offered to Rahab, who knew that this was a God that offered peace and mercy, and it was offered also to Gibeon, even though they found it and sourced it deceitfully in the disguise that they put on themselves, which we thought about last time. And even though they came in disguise, they made out that they came from hundreds of miles away. In fact, it was just 15 or 16 from Gibeon to where they were. They were still to honor the gift of peace and mercy that had been given to them, even with wrong assumptions. Well, in chapter 10, we're not going to study the verses particularly carefully, but at the beginning of chapter 10, there are five kings that you can read about. They come from the hill country. They feel very vulnerable because by now, the reputation of the king of Israel the reputation for the God of Israel, rather, is such that defeat seems to be certain. And yet, they confederate together. They decide to gather. And they gather because they think they're stronger if they unite their forces. Just look at a few of the verses. So Joshua ascended in verse 7. From Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. We're going to see this not just once, but twice this evening. A massed army. On this occasion, five kings. It's in the earlier verses. Five kings come together and the Lord speaks to Joshua. Verse 8, the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. 
there shall not a man of them stand before thee. Well, how's this going to be done? The children of Israel are few in number, five kings. They must be fearful. No, the Lord is with them. The Lord's word comforts them. The Lord's word, as it so often is in the pages of Scripture, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't worry about the future and all the things that could happen. For I have delivered them into thine hand. Well, there's two remarkable miracles. I'm sure you know these. In verse 11, the Lord causes miraculously there to be an enormous hailstone. I don't know how big these hailstones were. Sometimes they say, meteorologically, you can have hailstones the size of footballs. If one of those was to hit you, you would be dead. Perhaps it was something like that, that the Lord cast down, verse 11, great stones from heaven upon them, and they died. No question. These were heavenly missiles that came down. They died with hailstones. More were killed with the hailstones than that the children of Israel slew with the sword. Well, that was remarkable. The Lord intervened. How did it happen? I'm sure the meteorologist will tell us of some currents and differential of temperature. It doesn't matter. The Lord did it at that time, and it was one of the ways in which he delivered them. Then there's a second. Look at verses 12. Perhaps this is the more famous one of the two miracles. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered the Amorites. And he said in the sight of Israel, this is Joshua, son, stand thou still upon Gibeon and Moon in the valley. So this is to be the longest day ever recorded. And it's for a reason. Two reasons, principally. The Lord was to give extra time for the children of Israel to go and to destroy these five kings and their massed army. They would need a longer time. They were to fight. It wasn't just the hailstones, no. They were fully involved in the battle. You see, often, God doesn't just do the work. Sometimes he does, miraculously, as in the Acts of the Apostles, miracles accompanied the work. But here we see that they are to fight. Hailstorms, miraculously, and a miracle to enable them to fight for longer hours. So the sun stood still. Verse 14. There was no day like it, before or after, that the Lord hearkened to the voice of a man. Joshua had the power. That's important because one of the many 
many sins of the Amorites, the Canaanites, was that they worshipped the sun and the moon. They were their deities. They were, as a nation, beset with vile sin. We've thought about this. Children were offered up to the sun gods and the moon gods. They were involved in debauchery and vile, vile things. It tells us elsewhere in Scripture they are infamous because of the vileness and the depravity of their sin. But one of the things that they were known for was sun worship and moon worship. Well, it's therefore significant that a man, somebody who didn't worship the sun and the moon, Joshua, is given the ability at the click of a finger, at the saying of the words, God gave him the power in an instant to cause the sun to stop in the sky and the moon so that miraculously the day was extended to enable them to fight. And this would not have been lost on the enemy. How is it? These people, they're so powerful. Hailstones, and now no day like it. Surely, one more evidence. They still could have surrendered. They still could have asked for peace and for mercy, but none of it. Let's see what happens. Verse 17. Perhaps verse 16, but these five kings, they fled and they hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. Joshua gets to hear about it. He goes and rolls a stone in front of the cave and he puts soldiers there. He wasn't ready to deal with them. Verse 19, he tells them to stay whilst he goes and takes all the other soldiers, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. Then he returns, takes the stone away, and they are hung. The five kings, we've had this before in Joshua, symbolically hung on a tree, taking the punishment for their own crime. Of course, one day, as we thought before, the greater Joshua would bear the crime of us as he hung on a tree. This time, the five kings, symbolically again, they must bear the sins of themselves and of their people. Well, that's chapter 10. We've looked at that very quickly. I want to look particularly at chapter 11 this evening. Now this is really the second uh, episode. This is now the battle moving to the north. We've considered the southern conquests of Joshua, Jericho, Ai, and now these five kings in chapter 10. But as we come to chapter 11, he moves north. And this is to be a vast campaign. I won't give you the numbers yet, 
But it tells us in chapter 11, as we read, that there is one particular king. His name is Jabin. He's a sort of pharaoh. He seems to have been the king in charge of the northern territories. He's king of Hazel. If you go to the British Museum, you can find from this time, 1406 BC, they found a huge pot. It would have been a pot to carry water. It comes from this place, Hazor, which is now called Tel el Kada, and they've dated this pot, and symbolically it's significant that the pot is covered in ashes and the marks of burning. We read Hazor was the only one of the cities to be burned. It was destroyed utterly. The pot was destroyed, but it was burned as well. So this fits. The archaeology yet again supports the historicity of this part of Scripture, indeed of all Scripture, but of this particular area. Hazor, we understand from the excavations, had a population of some 40,000 people. It was a large place clearly one of the big cities, and Jabin was the king, possibly the largest city, and that's why he was so powerful. So he's the king, and he sends out letters. It says he has heard. What did he hear? Well, the things in chapter 10, five armies coming together, defeated, the sun standing still, the hailstorms, Jericho, Ai, what a weight of evidence. He heard it all. So does the world. The world hears the message of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, the unchanging laws of God which are so different from the rules of COVID that seem to change every week. I'm not blaming the government, they're doing their best. But the perfect law of God, consistent, timeless, no contradictions. And the world sees this, it knows it. What does it do? Oh, let's get all the troops together, five kings. Well, he heard these things. What should he have done? All the evidence layering up, layer upon layer. Well, let's see what he did. He writes to these other kings. He sends to Jobab, Shimron, and we find out in chapter 12, you don't need to turn to it, it's largely a list of names. 31 kings. Every town, every city in this north region, north of the Sea of Galilee, they all come together. Oh, five, that wasn't powerful enough. Let's have 31. Let's gather all our nations together to fight. Well, as though that wasn't enough, it says in verse 4, this is a figure of speech, as it always is. 
they were innumerable, like the seashore, like the sand on the seashore. But to add to that, they had numbers on their side. They had horses on their side. They had chariots. Poor Joshua. Foot soldiers. And just a few, maybe a few tens of thousands, let's say that. 31 kings, horses, chariots. Well, this is a fearful prospect, isn't it? It's frightening to the faithless mind. That's sometimes like us, isn't it? We look to the future. We see problems. Problems in the family. Problems in business life. Problems in national life. Oh, all these enemies. Problems mounting up. What's my career going to be? Am I going to have a career? How am I going to find a job in the middle of COVID? Who will I marry? What will happen to my children, my grandchildren, growing up in such a sinful world? Who will hear the word of God? Oh, all these things, they seem to be fearful. What a frightening prospect. Jabin heard of these things. The massed troops, the nuclear weapons of the time, gathered together. Verse 5, when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Merom. They came there and they refreshed themselves. And look at what it says, to fight aggression. We will fight. We'll have none of this God of Israel. None of his holy ways. We won't be defeated. No. 31 nations together. Well, let's see what happens. An intimidating prospect. But let's see how the Lord encourages Joshua. Verse 6, yet again, the Lord said unto Joshua, it sounds familiar, be not afraid because of them. For tomorrow, 24 hours from now, I will deliver them all slain before Israel. That's extraordinary. 24 hours from now? They have to travel there to start with. All they've got is bows and arrows, no horses, no chariots, outnumbered. What will Joshua do? The news would have traveled. They would have known how many there were. Well, here's the instructions. I will deliver them in 24 hours, but you've got to do two things. You've got to cut the hamstring of every horse, and you've got to burn their chariots with fire. You see, it's always a combination. This is what God will do. He'll open hearts. 
The Holy Spirit will convict hearts and he will save. This is what you've got to do. You've got to take the gospel. You've got to invite people to hear it. You've got to go to where they are, not wait for them to come to you. And when you get there, you've got to follow the detailed instructions. So verse 7, Joshua comes, full of faith. Joshua comes and all the people of war with him. Straight away, it seems like they hadn't made any preparations. Straight away, against them, they come. Suddenly, I don't know how many there were, hundreds of thousands, we would imagine, with Jabin and his armies by the spa town of Merom, taking their ease. The Lord has encouraged Joshua. His obedience is immediate. His obedience is total. And he's going to do God's work in God's way. He's going to do it God's way. Well, I want you to turn back to the book of Numbers. It's the only verses that we shall look at tonight. Did the children of Israel know what they were supposed to do? Was it just the instruction that we've read? Or, in fact, did they have very detailed instructions going back quite some time? Well, here we are, Numbers 33. I'd like to read from verse 50. Numbers 33, verse 50. This is important. It's referred to in this chapter throughout. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the plains of Moab. This is quite some time before. By Jordan, near Jericho, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, this is what you shall do. Drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their pictures, every single resemblance of God or of any deity. Destroy it. Destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down, completely destroy all the places of idol worship in the high places. And ye shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein. I have given you the land to possess it. And then he describes how it will be divided. But, this is important, verse 55, if, here's a warning, if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be an irritation in your eyes, thorns in your sides, metaphorically, and they shall vex and annoy you in the land 
wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you, if you don't obey me completely, as I thought to do unto them. This is God's way. The land of Canaan for 500 years has rejected God in the most vile way. Moses, tell Joshua. Here's the instructions. Joshua, tell the people. Here's the instructions, detailed instructions. No pictures, no idols, no resemblance of deity taking the place of God. Nothing in your home is to become even the thought of an idol. We can do that, can't we? We can have favorite possessions, paintings, pictures, not of God's, I'm sure, but things that if we lost our pleasure, our satisfaction would be affected. Oh, it's not wrong to have things of sentimental value and beauty and aesthetics, but if you lost it, would it make you mad? If your house was burgled and you couldn't replace it, would you be sad? We're to have no idols, no replacements for God, nothing that gives us lasting, deep spiritual satisfaction in life. All of that is to come from exclusively the Lord God himself. So, Joshua's had his instructions. Joshua takes the people back to Joshua 11, and he goes, and suddenly... The foot soldiers, they've traveled, no doubt, through the night, and they've come to the waters of Merom, and they've acted vigorously. Was there any let go and let God? Was there any fatalistic, we might call it hyper-Calvinistic, God has his people the elect is already determined. Christ has saved them at the cross. We do nothing. The victory is certain. We do nothing. No, none of that. Joshua came, and all the people of war with him against the waters of Merom. Suddenly, they used the best weapon they had, vigor, and surprise, and they fell on them. And what happened? Verse 8, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them. It wasn't enough just to defeat them near the lake and the rivers. They had to go to Zidon, to Mizpah, and they went until they left Nothing remaining. That's a picture of the Christian life. In our lives, we are to continually 
pursue every idol, every substitute, every form of unnecessary, too much pleasure, and get rid of it. And instead, to take even more pleasure in our God, in his character, in his word, in his truth, this increasingly is to be our source of satisfaction and of strength. And our faith will be strengthened. That's how it happens. We put out that ongoing process of faith being strengthened, the world being pushed to one side, and our faith being emboldened. So there we are, verse 9. Joshua did unto them just as the Lord had commanded. They cut the hamstrings of the horses. They burnt the chariots. Verse 10, Joshua at that time turned back. He had to do what God said. He had to go to Hazor, the principal town. He smote the king with the sword. Because Hazor, he was the king of the nations of this despicable northern part. And he was the head of the kingdoms. Verse 11, they smote all the souls with the edge of the sword. Well, all the record is there for us in chapter 11 and in chapter 12. It tells us that Joshua, verse 18, he made war for a long time. He didn't just stop. He wasn't satisfied with conversion, we might say. He wasn't satisfied with the first year of his Christian life, we might say. He went on and on, putting out the enemy, dealing with every single soldier, every single city that had idols to be destroyed, he made war a long time with all their kings. Verse 19, this is significant. Was it just? Was it fair? There was not a city that made peace. They could have made peace with the children of Israel, except the Gibeonites, because the Lord honored their attempt to seek for mercy and peace. All others they took in battle. Verse 20. We'll finish with this, and then i just come to a few points in summary. For it was of the Lord to harden their heart. This was judgment. Joshua sweeping through the land was judgment. But as they came to each city to each cohort of soldiers, the Lord could have softened their hearts. He could have drawn them to ask for peace, but he didn't, because they'd already rejected again and again and again all the warnings that Jabin had heard. And in the chapter before, the five confederate kings and at Ai, and at Jericho, 
he hardened their heart, just as he did with Pharaoh as the ten plagues came. So how are we to process this in our faith life? What are the seven steps to strengthen faith? This is the thought process we should have. Number one, God has promised, I will. There's no doubt. I will. Victory is certain. God has said it. His people will be saved. The enemies will be defeated. We will be taken to heaven one day. It's certain. The powerful shalls and wills of the word of God. Thirdly, God has promised victory is certain. We have a command. Chapter 10 and 11, twice. Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't fear the worst that Satan can do. Don't fear the massed army of 31 kings. Fourthly, you, I, we have an obligation to obey. No if, no maybe, no buts. As Moses commanded, so Joshua must do, so the people must do. Fifthly, no compromise. Oh, that's difficult. We have a tendency to compromise. Cut corners, shortcuts, not reading and praying today very much with my heart, half-heartedly. Compromise. No, none of it. No compromise. Destroy all. Sixthly, the warnings considered back in Numbers. If you don't obey in full, every I, every T, I'll have to do to you what I've done to them. And that will be very painful. Friends, if we do cut short corners, if we do compromise, the Lord will chastise us. He will withdraw blessings. He will take away some of the things that give us peace in believing until we come back to him, until we have joy, because we've spent the time in the secret place. Seventhly, finally, God is with his people through his word, and therefore we can be assured and comforted. These are the thought processes that we should have in our lives of faith. This is what Joshua is teaching us as he conquered these northern 31 kings, victorious. His obedience was as complete as his victory. And it will be for us too. The more we obey, the more we will have victory and success in the Christian life with our besetting sins and in usefulness for the Lord and for his kingdom.